So what you witnessed tonight um, is not an unusual um, ceremony, it's not an unusual commitment. All the people you see in this room who have either white and brown or orange ochre color will have been through this same ceremony. And um, <clears throat> it's um, when I consider, you know, my own uh, ceremony nearly 40 years ago, it was very different. We we're not here, we were chitters, we were in a very kind of dilapidate, dilapidated building um, and a quite um, adventurous situation. Nobody knew exactly what to do. Monks had never relieved really with nuns. They were like just out of the forest from Thailand. And uh, <clears throat> Naturalist Medo was just beginning his um, just establishing a forest monastery in England uh, with very little model. <laughs> the first one, in fact, in this part of the world, more or less, this the West. So, um, you know, as a Westerner, I mean. So that was um, very different nowadays. You have plenty of uh, senior monks, senior nuns, teachers around, and uh, they, we're not pretending to be enlightened, but at least uh, an experience of all the things you could avoid to do, and we had to go through ourselves. And, um, you know, because of a lack of experience, a lack of knowledge of this life, and perhaps um, a lack of... Um, knowledge of the monastic life altogether. It's a life which is not particularly well known. I remember myself when I thought about monastic life, I would never want to be a monastic. I never wanted to be a nun, even not chitters. I never went to chitters to be a nun. I had this kind of dreadful images, you know, even though I, even though I didn't become, I didn't come from a religious family particularly, but the idea of being in a kind of monastery seemed to be like just kind of spending one's life down walking down dark corridors into miserable-looking kitchen or whatever, some dreary, dreary place, dreary world that um, only certain people could um, get interested in. And I didn't know anything about Buddhist monasticism. I, I just got interested just in finding out what kind of spiritual community were and so on and uh, being interested in you know, reading mystical teachings or um, you know, Christian teachings and so on. I didn't know much about Buddhism. And so nowadays it's just incredible, this uh, incredible number of uh, um, places where you can have access to Buddhism. In a way, uh, I, I quite like the idea of my, you know, my own experience living in an era where Buddhism was very little known 
and was hardly any books on Buddhism, very little. Even I mean, a teacher was saying the same 40 years ago, but in comparison, 40 years down the road, you feel like there was also quite a, uh, you know, kind of deserted sense of uh, having very little accessible for us to understand what Buddhism was about. And it was more the era where you, you had a lot of the 60s or 70s, you know, where people just were looking for freedom. It didn't have to be encapsulated in one particular religion or form or anything like that. It can just be the, you know, just the freedom of searching, exploring, and finding out for oneself, not wanting any kind of, you know, superior, inferior authority, and nothing of that kind. We wouldn't want to. And certainly I was one of them. I refused to have authority. Um, well, I didn't refuse. I just didn't trust it, basically. And so, um, you know, certainly finding uh, an interest in this tradition, you wonder what brings you to this tradition, you know. And what it was is just this discovery that, aha, what my mind was looking for, what my mind was searching, gosh, Maybe I can actually learn to do that through a well-known path called Buddhism. So for me, you know, and I think for all of us, you know, we just suddenly realize there is a way of life you can undertake, a, way, a full lifetime way of life, if you wish to, to understand what this human life is about, but also not just to understand, to liberate truly the mind from the suffering of our greedy mind, self-centered mind, selfish mind, our mind which is reacting to the world, full of anger and frustration and uh, worry, anxiety, and so on. And then, um, you know, to, and then dispel ignorance in the mind. This is amazing. You can actually dispel, free the mind from ignorance. And ignorance is a word that's not very... Uh, you know, it doesn't really apply to what the Buddhist teaching is about. Ignorance means simply, uh, if you go back to the root of the, 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 this word in Pali, it means it's avijja. That means simply kind of cut off almost from knowledge. You know, so the knowledge is the knowledge of the Buddha. The Buddha transmitted this Dharma, uh, you know, knowledge. And so, when you say advija, it means your mind hasn't really known what the Dhamma is about. So the Dhamma is a huge world, of course. We can't see very much in one night, one evening. But basically, what I discovered was that there was a, a way to understand the mind. The way to... I didn't think about training yet, because I did not know there was a training. But I had great, uh, great respect for training because I used training as a dancer. I had to train very diligently, put a lot of effort and energy, concentration, passion, interest, and so on. So all these qualities were already very uh, developed in myself from early age. And um, so I always had a great respect and appreciation for the training. And so um, when I heard there was a mind training, it didn't seem like a, you know, gun entering a military camp, an army of Buddhist practitioner. It was more like, ah, I can learn something and transform because the training as a dancer transform your, 
your body into a dancer's body. So it's quite not a small thing from maybe being a, uh, normal human beings, but and uh, turning into the body, into able to dance and to perform and to do what you want to do with it, you know, on the physical level, is quite powerful. So, the idea of doing the same thing with the mind seemed to be really attractive for me. Not to be a nun, particularly, not to be a, a monastic Buddhist monastic, but to have this facility offered to me to use a teaching and the kind of various aspects of the teaching to walk this path of knowledge and this path that enables me to let go of my greed, my all the things which for me I had experienced very deeply at first as great pleasure, of course, like lot of, most of us, you know, like to enjoy the sensory world. And I certainly, being French, we don't have much shame to do that. So... Just any pleasure of life seems to be quite okay. Not something to worry too much about. Just enjoy it while it's there. And then, but you know, at some point, it's the same with anger. You know, we kind of, you know, the other poison in our tradition is this kind of, this greed hatred. And it's a mind which is, um, it has a, like a, an umbrella, an umbrella. It's under an umbrella called anger and kind of uh, consist of all the sort of different aspects of anger, such as, you know, rage and then wanting to kill somebody, harm somebody, and then continues maybe you get impatience, irritation, aversion, the whole lot, you know, down to just disliking somebody or something, you know. So uh, all these different themes like hatred and then greed, it's like just thinking about yourself constantly, uh, and then you realize you're thinking about a miserable self, so that really is very unsatisfactory. And then you you realize also that you uh, you know no matter how much you get, never enough. So I remember saying once in my teaching, you know, which is I continue to believe to this is still a truth, you know, for all of us. It's like you're here in the teaching, getting what you want, you know, is unsatisfactory. Not getting what you want. Oh, sorry. Getting what you don't want is unsatisfactory. Not getting what you want is unsatisfactory. But there come a point, I think maybe for all of us, we have maybe the shared experience where even when you get what you want, it's still really unsatisfactory. I'm sure all of us has managed to feel that you could get what you wanted at some point. At least I did. And then, and oh, I got what I wanted many times. But suddenly, that doesn't work anymore to make me happy. And I think all of us want to be happy, don't we? All of us want to live a life which is not happy all the time. But you feel that you're following a path that is embedded in what we, um, you know, what we, what is in the five precepts at the end of the precepts, you know, the five, eight, and so on, and ten. Um, you know, that uh, the, this sila is, you know, a source of happiness, a source of wealth, true wealth, true happiness, and true peace. So that true happiness is always something that is in us yearning for this, yearning for true happiness, yearning for true peace, yearning for true wealth, because no matter how wealthy we get, we have met maybe enough very wealthy people, very famous people, very renowned people to know that they too suffer, you know, 
the, the, the go through the suffering of a human existence, you know. They too don't get what they want often, I'm sure. They too get what they don't want. And they too, you know, are dissatisfied for whatever they get. So this is something that I think all human beings at some point reach that point. I mean, you, some of you maybe have been uh, studying, very successful in many things and so on. And I don't think you end up at Amarawati by chance. It's the same search. You know, we're still searching. And some of you maybe have found what they, what they searched, you know, by following this path, whether it's here or in any other place. For some people, it may be the path of Christianity. For others, it may be the path of Judaism, Islam, whatever. You know, all religions offered, offer some kind of uh, ways of, you know, coming to know oneself, coming to let go of things that are really um, uh, surround, uh, so around me first and so on, you know. So, at some point, suddenly, we all get there, and it's a great joy to me, it was a great joy to find a teacher like Katrin Somedo who had already walked this path, had had a lot of experience, and had been doing a training with what's very impressive with Ajahn Shah, which a training that gave you a, a lot of confidence and faith in that path. And so today, um, you know, in my time, we are just four women when we turn up at the monastery in this dilapidated, wet, damp, dark, place. And it was so adventurous that I thought nothing in the world outside the monastery could offer me something as fun as that. Because we were young enough to get through all the, you know, all the kind of version of, you know, being, being miserable to being very happy. So we had enough energy to bounce up and down for whatever was going on, you know. And I still remember how uh, despite the conditions, we all had a lot of energy and a lot of happiness because Ajahn Sumedhu was a brilliant teacher, as far as I was concerned, and had was very human as well, you know. So that makes it easier. He was so close to us in many ways that makes it easy to relate to him, not as a guru sitting on a high, high seat, but as just a very human being. So. Um, Having so few women in those days, when I look around, I mean, many nuns, some nuns are on retreat, some nuns are at different monasteries, so not everybody is here. But over the years, we have always had a fairly large, largish community, not by comparison with Asian nunneries, which can have 100 nuns, 200 nuns, and so on. But by... Uh, Western standard with Westerners in the early years, mostly Westerners, that was very unusual and quite unique, you know. So um, this is a, a great difference nowadays. You have a place where you can actually come for women, which is rare. They are very, still very rare places for women, you know. So. Um, this is something I've witnessed over the years myself, the various stages of this history of women in Buddhism in the West. You know, at first, um, there was nothing much. You know, even for us, we had no idea. I mean, there was no training particularly. But 
all of us, the four of us, first four, we were really keen on using the life for what we felt was supposed to be, training the mind, training the heart, and realizing the Dhamma. So there was no doubt in any of the four of us. We all were there for the right reasons, you know. So um, what uh, what happened over a period of time is that the, the Bhikkhu Sangha being established for 2,500 years, there had never been a shortage of people wanting knowing the, the history and the monastic uh, tradition uh, with uh, the men on the men's side, but on the women's side it was much very rare, you know, very rare. So it is wonderful that people now have a place where they can come and do a proper training. And it's five years training usually. And it starts with one year, no contract. You just do one year. And then if both parties, the nuns and the person who is training, is happy, then we say, okay, a second year. And then if both parties are happy a second year, we say, okay, you can become, you can continue if you want to be a Siladora. So it's not something that's imposed. People have to be really, really keen to do this training because it's not a place where you come here just to hang out and have a good time. I'm afraid you have to go somewhere else. It depends what kind of good time you want, you know. For me, it's the best time of my life, best time in my life, but not for everybody. So it's not a place where you just, um, you know, uh, hope people, people are going to do the training for you. You see? This is a, a, a tradition where you really, really have to take yourself on board and responsible for your own life here. And Achan Sumedho used to repeat again and again and again, you have to make it work for yourself. Because there are many times when all of us go through this, when the mind is bored, the mind is tired, the mind is disappointed, is angry, is you know, it's like really uh, lost inspiration. Then you get upset with yourself, and then you hate life. You hate your neighbors, and you love everything suddenly. Everything you know. So, what you learn in this life is that uh, the basic things of Buddhist, of Buddhist teaching, which we all know intellectually, we all know that, but we don't have a, a framework to actually organize understand it through a larger spectrum, a larger universe, you know. So, for example, everybody gets bored, don't we? Everybody gets anxious and upset. Everybody gets frightened. Everybody can experience, you know, feeling disappointed, feeling miffed, feeling uh, upset, feeling uh, inspired, uplifted, and so on, you know. So we have a whole range of feelings that comes and go in our mind, but we often don't know. Before we start, sometimes we just suffer without knowing how to deal with those feelings, you know, depression, despair, and so on. Now everybody goes through that at some point, you know, in, in a more or you know deep way or light or, or, or just pass, you know, t temporary way. So to find the teachings that suddenly address these things in a way that you never heard before. Intellectually, you've heard the words, the concept, but nobody maybe has given you, a, as I said earlier, a framework to interpret them in a particular way. So when the Buddha says, you know, say, it points to the fact that everything is impermanent, everything is unsatisfactory, and everything doesn't belong to you, it's not you. There is no 
self in the, everything you experience. So these three concepts, you know, are not always easy to make sense of it. I mean, and, uh, and permanence is not so difficult, you know, because we can see it very quickly. You know, we know that one moment we feel good, one moment we don't feel good, one moment we feel inspired, the next moment we want to go to sleep, you know. One moment, so it's all very dependent on our mood, our feelings, our body, and so on. A whole world is created out of this instrument here, you know, and the mind, which is, I don't know where it begins and ends, but it's certainly not in my brain. The brain will be the one that interprets the mind, that enables the mind to be known, you could say, through feelings, through uh, thinking, through um, all these things. So, um, what you uh, realize when you become a monk or a nun, you, um, you know, this is a path of renunciation as well. Now, one thing I love about the Buddha, I always realize he's so human. <laughs> he's so, his teaching is so incredibly ordinary human at some level, you know. So, for example, renunciation. You know, we think of renunciation and we think about gritting our teeth maybe and feeling really, God, I have to work really hard and I'll be really miserable without renouncing anything. And the Buddha at some point in his, in his teaching, he says, well, you know, I did not renounce basically. I mean, I don't, I don't remember the teaching exactly, but I, I did not renounce, you know, as long as I enjoy what I want to, you know, what I renounce later. You know, you don't renounce maybe something you enjoy because I might think some, that might seem why should I re renounce it? I enjoy it, you know. So for him, it was like there was a time when he, he knew he did, just didn't want this anymore. He renounced what's ready to let go almost. You understand? And the practice, of course, activates that vision of what is a kind of wearisome, what is something at some point, you know, you got excited about some aspect of your life and then as you know, later on, it didn't mean much. You know, it's like, oh, so what kind of thing. You know, and that's a pattern that, that goes, you know, that is activated for every aspect of our life. We fall in love maybe with uh, somebody and you know very well the stories, you know, it's that they last one week, one, two weeks, one month, two months, one year, two years, and then after that, people, very often people start separating, divorcing, get, just get bored with each other. Disappointed. The same with ourselves, how we feel about ourselves. That is also changing all the time. And sometimes there's a basis for feeling quite negative. You know, some people are negative temperament or, or hyper positive, you know, and each other don't understand each other. They don't understand what, how can one can function a certain way and the other one another way. I still remember when I came back from my first retreat at Ajahn Sumedho. Ajahn and I were the last one to leave the place because we literally were so inspired by Ajahn Sumedho that we could not leave. We wanted to hear more teaching, more teaching, because in a way, his heart was pouring out with wisdom, and it was so inspiring for us. And I remember she said to me, uh, she wanted to give me a lift to Oxford where I was going to take, catch a train. And her brother and sister-in-law were there and were going to drive me. And so on the way, before we reached the car, I said, how was the retreat for you? And, and uh, she said, it was really difficult all the way so much. So difficult, really. I, I had a lot of suffering. 
And she said, how was your retreat? And I just said the truth. I absolutely loved it. I was in heaven. I liked getting up early, being a dancer, not eating two meals. Felt perfect for my diet. So I, I loved the diet. Um, I loved the teaching. I loved everything. I was in heaven. It doesn't mean that one is a worse meditator or less, a bad, you know, good or bad meditator, just different temperament. I don't understand. Now we couldn't be more different. But still here, 40 years later, we still carry on walking the path. So don't worry about your personality. Don't try to be like somebody else. Just be yourself. And so when we um, enter this path, you know, it's always sweet to hear how everybody experiences the same thing. I thought I was a nice person, you know. I said, quite a kind, people liked me, and uh, I was really, uh, I was an interesting character for the people around me. People really uh, had fun with me and so on. And then you come to the monastery, and you start seeing those long, straight, you know, deadpan faces, and you start wondering, oh, my dear, did I do something wrong? You know, wow. you know, do they like me? Do they don't like me? And so on. And so it's really strange. Suddenly, it's not just the people outside, but also inside you, you start giving place, space for all the things you never wanted to see. You know, how many of us want to see ourselves, you know, as an angry person? You know, most of the time, society forces you to be a particular persona. You have to be a personality all the time, you know, a charming, charismatic, you know, make yourself beautiful, make yourself really lovable and so on. You know, it's a lot of smiling and lots of looking good and so on, right? And then not only people give you a doubt because they look quite straight. When you're mindful, you know, people can look much more uh, faceless, like straight. You know, you're not like, hi, you know, how are you? You know, Good morning, you know, how things are well? Oh, I haven't seen you yesterday, you know. What about your grandmother? Is she well? You know, blah, blah, blah. Here, as people just walk around, you know, it's just getting to, the, getting to their work, you know, straight face, no smiling much, you know, and, and at first it takes a while to really feel comfortable in that, you know. Fortunately, I was lucky. Ajahn Samid always had a big smile on his face, you know. I think he knew he, we, he, needed, we, he needed to smile to this whole bunch of Westerners who looks always angry for Westerners. Westerners look angry from the vision of Buddhists in Thailand, you know. We look, we have an energy and a body energy that is like tough, you know, compared to the Thai. I lived nearly three years in Thailand, you know, and I became Thai, I became like them when people used to cross, a, you know, walk through the monastery. You felt they were like square box full of strength, full of kind of tightness and stress, you know, and they were coming to say, you know, where's my kuti? Can I get to my place, you know? When do I have to get up in the morning? They all kind of like this. For the Thai people, it's so strange, me becoming Thai there, it's like they're much more flowing. You know, you wait, somebody will tell you when the thing is there, or the time, when you get up, you know, here Westerner, we want to know everything, like, you know, everything, little box for everything. And so, when we came to this tradition, if uh, it kind of was strange a little bit, you know. So I, I say that because Ajahn Sumedho, also for the Westerners who are in Thailand, having spent there a number, quite a long time, I remember many of the, the, the there was a kind of, kind of funny um, perception of us that with Westerners just smile all the time for the teachers, you know, smile. 
smile. Otherwise, the fear of them becoming angry almost, you know. So the Western, the Thai teachers, at first, until they know you better and they feel comfortable just to treat you like everybody else, you know. But many teachers will kind of smile first, you know, to make you happy. <laughs> Once they see your happy face, they feel more comfortable. But look, us were looking terribly severe and kind of really intense is not something that is easily readable for a um, Thai teacher, I noticed, you know, unless you are somebody like Ajahn Shah, who didn't have any problem with reading people's mind and body and uh, their story and so on. So um, when you sort of begin the training, what happens is that, wow, you didn't realize you, help, you had opened the door to all, I would say, quote-unquote, the demons of the mind, you know. Suddenly, you open the, the prisons of all what we call the kilesa. Kilesa is like the uh, afflictive emotions or the, uh, you know, the miserable state of mind, like greed, hatred, anger, jealousy, envy, selfishness. I mean, all the long list of miserable states of mind that everybody knows in this part of the world. They're called kilesa, you know, miserable mental states, negative, unskillful mental state. Mental state which, without wisdom, will lead you down to hell, you know, mini hell, big hell, even in this lifetime, the hellish state of mind, you know. So it's very important to um, realize that when you start the path, you are beginning to relax inwardly. You're beginning to be more at ease with yourself. And then your karma ripens, you know. Whatever you left, you know, is in your world, in your mind. This time, without talking about past life, future life, forget about that. Just to deal with the present moment, you begin to see all the stuff that you carry around you hadn't noticed before. Most of the time, when we feel uncomfortable, we move away from our situation, don't we? We don't realize that every time we move away from one place to another, we take our mind with it. And our mind is not what you see, the brain. The, it's just a whole world that we carry with us. It goes somewhere, it goes with us. So the, for the first three days or four days, week, maybe when you go to another place, you feel relieved, you know, from this mind. For, you know, I'm glad I've changed. I'm glad I've gone somewhere else, you know. Well, within a week, it kind of re, <laughs> reshape itself around you. It reconstructs itself, and you find yourself caught up with the same kind of uh, problem, same kind of difficulty, challenges. Yeah? So this is what I always say when the women come into this community, I have really clear confidence. I say to them, you're not coming, like, you know, in the past, in Thailand, in the early years, I'm talking 40 years ago, you know, there was a sense that if you came to the monastery, either your husband left you, your parents were sick and or dying, or you were depressed and in a terrible state. You had no money, and you have to end up in a monastery because that's all you could do. It's like, you know, a, a, a dormy kind of nursing home or depressed houses for depressed women, you know, poor and depressed women and sick women. Anyway, I, I you know, and so, seeing, of course, these things have changed totally because nowadays... Women are so much into the picture of the society, and even at the level of, you know, of nuns and convent and so on, and religious um, place for women, um, you know, it's very well known that uh, 
uh, things are very different now. Women are educated, uh, wealthy women are interested in the Buddhist path as none, you know. So it's not a matter anymore of condition that leads you without options, you know, into a monastery. I, there's many people over that have come, come this path over the years who are, came from rich family, highly educated, super educated, and so on. So it's not that kind of a forum anymore. It's a forum where people are really brave enough and confident enough that this path will help them. So the first thing I say, you know, it's like, please, when you come to this uh, community, remember, you may not know that yet, but you have an enormous strength and an enormous power in you to even want to move in that training, to even think about doing it, you know, because very few people do that. Very few people turn to a life of renunciation, a life where you have little choice for at least during the time of training, and a life where you have to really be willing to learn a completely new trade. Like, for example, this is, a hard, this is an Asian form. So for us, at the beginning, we took on board, you know, because it was just fun in some way. I never really, it was a choreography. I used to say, this is a choreography. You know, it didn't mean that much. It's just like, oh, let's, let's play the game, basically. This is like a choreography. I don't mind doing this choreography if I can learn from Ajahn Sumedho. That's it. If that takes that much, I don't mind, you know, at the time. It was worth the renunciation of any idea about what I think about what I, myself. But, um, you know, little by little, you begin to see how, you know, this life, wow, it's like truly Asian. It's like hierarchical. You have the up and down. You have the men on top, the women down. So we spend all these decades, you know, just actually, certainly for me, realizing the situation, but I had determined myself, maybe semi-consciously, but eventually very consciously, that this life was going to be my world, and I will, work, I will learn from this life. I didn't have to have another life to learn. No matter how down I got, how up I went, and down again, and up I, I was determined to use this path to see my life, not just my mind. My mind is my life. To see my life and liberate my mind with this life. You know. It's like one of our elders from the beginning. I remember he said, this life, I do monk. <laughs> and I could relate to that. He said, this life, I do none. Of course, the future is uncertain. We all know that, you know. But that certainly what I would imagine, nothing as interesting as this life for me, you know. So, yeah, so this is a life for strong women, I repeat, you know. And it's a life that has, uh, you know, an aspect of renunciation, which is not common, you know, like you renounce sexuality. It's quite a big thing, for, especially in the modern world, where sexuality is written on every wall, you know. It's all over the place. You keep bumping into, you know, being reminded you're a sexual being. So by the way people dress, by the way people want things, by the way people... So there's nothing wrong with sexuality, you know. It's just like the brahmacharya is like, yeah, you don't have that. <laughs> so 
Um, and don't think people who have come here just come with this idea that, you know, sexuality is bad and they are really happy to not have any of that here. You know, it's like really, they're not renouncing. That's exactly what they want. So sexuality doesn't go, sexual energy doesn't go <laughs> dormant, you know. You feel these things just like you feel anger, you feel also sexuality, you feel attraction, repulsion, you feel all these things. It's not that you put yourself in a box, you know, cutting yourself off life. You're not, you don't cut yourself off life. Simply, you turn to a way of life that renouncing this particular um, function in terms of acting on it. That's all. It doesn't mean that this body is still a sexual body. Do you understand? Right? It's a human body and it has, it's a sexual body. I just repeat that because some people think like, you know, we're so bizarre. We just renounce it consciously. And then meditation, you still get to know this, you get to understand this, you can make peace of it. It's like you learn how to make, liberate your, your mind from these desires. Because you want to. It's not like, it's not just a sexual desire. Any desires, which include sexuality, but it's a desire for, you know, greed for food, greed for money, greed for this, greed for that. There's so many, you know, pathways to greed. And it's not the object that's so important, actually. What we're working on is actually the root of this, the source of the desire, energy. Because many people think that if they didn't have any desires, they could not function. They think their mind have to have sorts of desire to function. Well, uh, in partly it's true because the things that we want to do are not always skillful, not always very good, but we wouldn't do them if we didn't really want them. So the path of renunciation is, put, is taking you to understand that the mind is a beautiful mind. It's not a mind that is suffering. It's a mind that is not a divine mind, particularly. You know, it's a mind, not a mind that can sink and dance and play harps and, you know, butterfly, fly with a butterfly around and so on, you know. No, it's a mind where you discover the wisdom and the compassion of your life here in this path. You begin to understand that there is an aspect of this, of the human mind that is totally wise and compassionate. And that is not discovered straight away. Neither trusted straight away. You know, it takes a, a quite a long time to trust your mind, to trust the path that takes you to transform the mind. You may trust it, you know, you, you will trust it now at the beginning already, otherwise you, none of us will be here. But what I mean is that you get tested along the way quite a bit into losing faith, into being discouraged, into uh, not feeling you can do it, into feeling that you are, uh, you know, this is not a good path for you because you feel um, dissatisfied. And a lot of dissatisfaction on this path, you know, living with people you don't choose, you know, living a daily life, repetitive, you know. I had a fun life before I came to the Sangha, you know, I was really a fun girl in a way. I like enjoyment. And many people I know here over the years were all like me, you know, somehow. They were not particularly dull type of characters. They were all very uh, energetic 
women who had a lot of, you know, um, capacity to make, to enjoy themselves, you know, in, in their life before they came to the training. And so now the enjoyment is slightly different, uh, moves, you know, from maybe just um, indulging in whatever this and that to becoming more conscious, more aware of our responsibility in this life as a human being. Nobody wants to be a selfish person. I know that. Nobody is satisfied with just a selfish life. And in fact, you discovered that the only way to be healthy in mind and body and spirit is actually to be unselfish, to be able to give, to help, to, uh, you know, to um, offer things to life, to people, to oneself, you know, not, not forgetting oneself. So, in the end, you know, this path is just very practical because all of us looking for happiness will find it, you know, through um, this uh, discovery of unselfishness, the discovery of not being greedy anymore, the discovery of having a mind that can deal with conflict, with difficulties, with challenging situations, with really hopeless case situations, not so much with anger anymore, or greed, or whatever. Greed and anger, they play together. You know, when you don't get what you want, you get angry. When you get what you don't want, you get greedy. <laughs> you can play with the words like this. Just one time, one way of expressing it. But, yeah, so, you know, when you um, get to the point where you can really feel that this life is not satisfactory anymore, because... You don't want to continue a world of selfishness. You don't want to continue a world of confusion. It's like some, at some point we're strong enough to say, no, I don't want to do this. I have to find a way. And most people who are here have discovered them in themselves. It's not anybody has told them that. Particularly, maybe the friends help. The external world help. External world helps a lot. But still, it's actually something that rises up in our heart. You begin to little by little, like he did for me. I was not at all planned to be a nun. Last thing I wanted to be a nun, you know. But then suddenly, your nun is not an external thing. It's a nun is a, is a heart, mind, a life that is really interested in the truth, you know. It's like, I want to find out before I die whether I lived my life how I wish to, how I lived this life with no regret, you see. So this is very important aspect question we need to ask for in us, you know, in, in ourselves. What is it that brings me here? What is it that keeps me here? Because it's not a life for everybody. If so many monks and nuns have come and go, come and gone. You wouldn't believe all the time. You know, I mean, ten years ago we lost many nuns, and many monks have come and go, gone. So it's not that we have to stay here to carry on living. You know, after five years, people can do what they want. In fact, they can do what they want on day one, almost, you know, in terms of if they really went crazy and mad and couldn't stand enough after a week, we're not going to hold them down, you know, and waiting for them to go to the psychiatric hospital, you know, to get treated. They can go. <laughs> you know, they can leave. Right? It's a place where you come, and it's not easy to enter, and you can go very easily. You just say, I don't think I want to carry on, I want to disrobe. Okay, we do a little ceremony and they can go. That's what attracted me to that as well. If I had had a, 
a, a lifetime vows. I don't, I don't think I've lasted three days. <laughs> I'm too kind of ferocious, uh, ferociously attached to my own liber freedom, liberty. But from the beginning, for me, I live with this idea that, you know, things that keep me in the moment, you know, to live in the present moment is really what the training is about, by the way. You know, you learn to fully be with the present moment, and then you fully be with your full consciousness. You understand in the present moment, this is when you contact your mind in its most greatest potential. Most of the time, we have very fractured consciousness, fractured mind. That's what I, I discovered in myself. I want one thing one day, the next thing I don't want it. I hate that day. I, next day, I don't like it. I, you know, sometimes I, you know, so many things going on in the mind that conflicted and uh, confused, you know. So this is something that we are all yearning to, how to find a mind that's whole, a whole consciousness not fractures, that knows that what seems to be fracturing it is actually our thinking mind, our feeling of the, you know, many feelings, many thoughts, many perceptions, many stories. That seems to give us a very fractured perception of ourselves. We never know who we are. We never know who is a person in there. I, I remember thinking, God, you know, I've got so many persona in myself. Which one am I supposed to follow, you know? The one that wants to dance all night, the one that wants to drink, the one that wants to, uh, you know, have partners, the one who have, we feel very kind of spiritual and totally devoted to the truth, the one that wants to smack people on their face because they irritate me. You know, so at some point we don't know ourselves, we just wonder, what am, how am I going to live with this fractured personality? So, uh, the past takes you little by little to not reconstruct yourself, but first of all, to let go of the thing you realize by yourself that you don't need. You know? And <laughs> maybe surprise, surprise, meditation, when you do it correctly, wisely, it's actually a way of opening the doors to the mind to let go of all the things you don't need because things are impermanent. The only thing that keeps things seemingly permanent is a, is a belief in a wrong self, a wrong view. You haven't seen yet that the nature of all your experiences change. In fact, at some point, it's changing really quickly. You can't keep up with it. So the present moment is a very secure place when you see change all the time. You see, this is your refuge. We call the three refuges. Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Buddha uh, is uh, sometimes it's interpreted in that way. You can see the Buddha, the historical Buddha, or the Buddha within you, the, the one in you that can see, read it to the delusion, Anicca, Dukkanata, these things that are creating suffering and also giving you misperceptions of life. Yeah? So um, when you um, live this life as a monk or as a nun, it's not a very well-known life. As I said that before, people don't understand it. You know, because it seems like we are selfish, going away from the world, working 
looking at our navel all day long in meditation. It's really funny. I come across people over the years who have no idea what we do in the monastery. So they come to me with great kind of starry eyes and say, so do you meditate, you know, every day? And, you know, all day, how many hours a day do you meditate, you know? At the time of the year when we spend like three years on the scaffoldings, they're covered in mess, you know, cold and damp, working all day, going on Pindapat in the morning at seven o'clock in the morning, freezing cold. Do you meditate all day? I said, no, I'm afraid not. But meditation is actually an all-day activity, but not on, seated on a cushion necessarily. Meditation is a, a, a mind, a mind meditative mind. An approach to life which is meditative. A mindfulness life. A life founded on mindfulness, awareness, consciousness. A, you know, an awakened life. That's your meditation. You know, we sit on cushions. That's a formal practice and that's very important practice because that's really, you can see the mind as a more subtle level, you know. The mind that reminds you, you may have not noticed, it's a mind that always you sit a few minutes, you know, with yourself. I remember in the early years and over the years, you know, and suddenly you remember you had an argument with somebody in the morning and were really nasty with them. Gosh, and you feel full of regret and remorse. If you hadn't meditate, I never knew that. Or maybe you remember somebody's been kind to you, or whatever. You remember something that will go unnoticed if you were not meditating. You know, it's just the, the fact that let things go, let things decant themselves. You know, let things kind of fall down the bottom of your mind, and then suddenly other things come up, new things come up, things that may have held no importance during your day. Suddenly, ah. You wake up to them. You suddenly hear them, see them, understand them better, maybe. So, this is a very rich life, a very exciting life. Why? Because everybody likes to know that things will change, don't we? In some level, Many of us will love the idea of having a changing world, not a kind of stuck world. I mean, in opposition to a stuck world. You know, nobody wants to be stuck in one situation. So, the Buddha is quite clever. He said, you don't need to be stuck at all. In fact, he started with the mind itself. <laughs> we may be in the same situation for a long time, but the mind doesn't have to be stuck. Do you understand? The mind is constantly showing you through awareness, mindfulness, consciousness, showing you that the mind is constantly in a state of flow. So in that flow, you need to have a strong re a refuge. The awareness is your refuge, you understand? You can go and bring you back to the present moment. It's your solid, stable place where you can see all the movement. I use the M25 image because in London is such a traffic pl place full of traffic all the time. You know, your inner M25, right? You can see. And over the years, things, of course, change. You find that your mind is quite happy being empty for longer and longer periods of times. Function very well, empty. But it's not empty. It's full of what? 
It's full of this peace. It's full of this happiness. And it's full of this um, sense of wealth, you know, I talked about. The sense of being kind of full in a very good way, in such a skillful way. You feel fulfilled, you could say, in your aspiration, in the way you live. It's like a sense of fulfillment, which does not need an external confirmation. That's the beauty of this path. You don't need to be externally confirmed to feel good. You have built a sense of goodness within yourself, which is independent of what people think. What life brings you is part of you. And that's the beauty of this teaching. Whether you walk the path in a formal way or not, you know, that's the beauty of this, you know, the transmission of the Buddha, what he has given us, given mankind 2,500 years ago. You know. So sometimes we want to be independent. We don't want to have anybody depending on us, depending on anybody else. But the independence, the true independence is that, for me, that is that. This is the independence. To be because the open, the past opened the heart, so you become sensitive to life. You're not closing on to life. You're not cutting yourself from life. You become more sensitive, more perceptive of what's around you. Your mind is not just be thinking about me, 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 what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to sleep, blah, 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 blah. My friend, my this. You open up. You say, hey, you notice people dying, you notice people uh, sick, you notice people that's, you know, um, getting old, etc. The three signs that the Buddha saw that made him walk the path. Old age, sickness, and death, doesn't it? So you begin to learn these things as you walk this path. Like life is uncertain, life is impermanent. One day to the next, we don't know whether we'll still be alive the next day. This is a reflection that's become very natural for monks and nuns, you know. It's not a nasty thing. It's like be faced with the truth. Is the truth nasty? I've never felt the truth was nasty for me. It's liberating and joyful, actually, even if it is unpleasant and difficult to accept. Not joyful in the sense, I'm not going to dance because I think of death, you know, or somebody's dying or somebody's sick. No, it's joyful in, in a peaceful way in the sense of it brightens your mind to know the truth. Once you get over the fear, <laughs> there's fear as well. So you have to brighten your mind, you keep the mind bright around the fear. You brighten your mind around uh, all the things we dislike. And by the fact you come to look at that with a bright, clear mind, then they, they leave because they don't, you don't need them. Everything that leaves is, is something you don't need. But for a long time, we think we need many things. And that's what the past is showing you, little by little. Not so changing the external only, but your relationship with yourself becomes very full and beautiful relationship. You, know, you feel suddenly the sense of somebody who can be respected, who can be loved, who can be appreciated with an instrument that helps you in living a life of goodness and kindness and compassion. Fearless. You know. So, this is um, a great gift to the world as well, to have more summoners in our life. 
because when people ask me, you know, what do you do for the world? You know, here you're sitting, looking at your navel all day long, doing nothing. You don't even earn money. Wow. You're waiting for people to feed you with your arms bowl. Isn't it terrible? Well, if you go to Thailand, they will never perceive you like this. They will perceive the monks as great blessing in the society. Maybe that's why Thailand, I've never been, um, uh, you know, what do you call this, uh, uh, invaded by anybody. I mean, re recently I'm talking about, never been colonized, for example. They've had so, much, so many wise people in their country that somehow it protected them, you know, from being colonized for the Western powers, you know. I always reflect on that. It's interesting. And it's funny when um, I met a Sadhu, a Mian Sadhu, an Englishwoman Sadhu in, in uh, India many years ago when I was a nun already. And there's a famous, famous guru in Thailand, called, in uh, India, called Nem Kerili Baba, who used to be the teacher of Ramdas, you know, the professor, Harvard professor who was very famous in our, in our period of time, you know, when I started. And who became himself a kind of guru figure. And, uh, you know, I heard that people said, Nemkarali Baba, maybe I should say that publicly, but that's what was going around, that Nemkarali Baba had uh, helped India not to be invaded by the Chinese. Now, whether it's true or not, I have no idea, but I thought the idea was quite nice. I didn't have to believe it myself, but I quite enjoy the idea of a sage kind of <laughs> pushing somebody who could invade your country rather than going to war. Isn't it nice to think of a, a, a wise person doing that? Whether it's true or not, that's not something for me to say. I have no idea. But certainly this society needs this kind of, so, this kind of people, summoners. And when somebody said to me, what do you do here for society? When I said, you know, I've, I considered that topic quite carefully for a long time, you know, and it, I came to the conclusion that this is my most powerful social action in the world. A monastery that lives with few needs, simple life, survive on faith and trust, you know, in the goodness of people and society. Isn't it an amazing example for society? At least they come, people come here to experience the peace of a trusting heart, you know. The peace of a loving heart. Even if they don't get it themselves, maybe immediately. And the peace of good companionship, too, you know. So um, when people are worried, it's not People don't ask you this as much now because so many people benefit from Amarawati now for the last 30 years that there's a tremendous, I think, gratitude from people coming here, visiting the place and all our monasteries, you know, spiritual places. I don't want to kind of confine it to Amarawati, you know, but any places where people can find some peace, some respite, people uh, express a great gratitude for them. So, I really wish our new sisters in white. Now we're used to white. When I wore white for the first time, I, I, didn't, I didn't think I would die, but I could have thought I would die because I hated white. I like pretty clothes, you know, so the idea of just being shaven and in white was not 
particular appealing. But because you have to have a sense of humor in this life, otherwise you die, you know, on day one, I think. You have to have a sense of humor. You know, for me, I say, oh, I don't care, white. You know, as long as I can listen, I can learn from my Tomato, I can listen to his teaching, fine, you know. And then he didn't want us to shave our head at the beginning. We had cropped hair, about one centimeters. And I think he didn't dare having this bunch of women with a shaven head because maybe he wasn't sure how it would work, you know. And for him to see us shaven-headed, you know, with our parents, he might feel a bit guilty, you know. What are they going to say? You know, maybe they think, they're going to think he's a guru that's forcing the women to shave their head. So we were had a great fortune. We were actually, our head was shaven two years later by a person who has become a very famous teacher. She used to be, uh, it's um, Martin Batchelor, the wife of Stephen Batchelor. And she was a bikuni at the time. And she um, she arrived at Chitters at the monastery, and she offered to shave our head. We must have discussed that we haven't had it shaved completely for whatever reason. And she said, oh, I'm happy to shave it for you. So she shaved our head. And I think Achen Somedo couldn't say anymore. I don't think we asked permission, actually. Maybe we did. But in those days, we didn't ask permission as much as we do now. It was more free. And I think being done by a bikuni from Korea, you know, French, she's French, so I don't think Ajahn Sumedho would have said anything, probably. <laughs> That's okay. It's not me, so it's fine. You know, he, he had it, somebody else did it, so it was okay. He wouldn't feel so responsible, do you understand? That's my interpretation, by the way. I don't know what was going on in his mind. So, um, we're getting to the end of this uh, reflection. Hopefully, it will give you confidence in um, what uh, Marisela and Anna Maria, um, Anna Marie, um, are, have undertaken the big step they have undertaken in this life, and um, always being reminded it's just one year, so they're not prisoners here. They can leave the way, you know. So they they can leave any time, and if anybody can do that too. So uh, hopefully we can just wish them that they will benefit you know, to the maximum from this um, life they have chosen. <laughs> Thank you.